So one of the places that is full of memories for me growing up in Richmond is Gary Point. Has anybody been to Gary Point? And so Gary Point is a place for me that when I think of, I go back to my childhood, like growing up, going to Gary Point with my family to do one thing, and that is to fly kites, right? Because if you know anything about Gary Point, it is a place where the ocean wind meets land, and it's just a great place to fly kites. So when I think of Gary Point, oftentimes I can picture myself as a kid running with some sort of weirdly shaped kite, be it a plane or some sort of, I don't know what other shape there is, a dragon, or like, you know, something cool that my dad would get for me. And the sun hitting my face, me just screaming and yelling, trying to get this kite up in the air, and uh, just great memories. But at the same time, you know, when I think of Gary Point, because it's such an iconic place for me growing up in Richmond, there's memories that are attached there that are full of grief, that are full of loss, that are full of suffering. And if I forward in my life back to moments at that place, now being older as a father, having my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter with me, Vesper, who's about to turn eight. But I think about this moment, and I remember being on that beach, trying to keep her away from the water, but at the same time, meters away as she's enjoying the water, as she's enjoying the ocean on this July day, my wife's side of the family is having a funeral for my nephew, Judah, who was born, stillborn, because of complications in the womb. And in this moment, although what is being contrasted in this memory is joy of my daughter, it's also met with sadness. The happiness of my one and a half year old playing on the water, who's oblivious to the pain and suffering of her aunt and uncle just meters away. But isn't this the spectrum of experience of life, right? No matter who you are, what you believe, this is part of being human and living out this life. Even as we've gone through the book of Acts these past couple months, it's been a spectrum of experiences. We've seen Dr. Luke at the beginning of Acts tell us about in Acts 2 an eyewitness account of God pouring out his spirit, revival breaking out, And as Peter preached the gospel to these people, 3,000 come into the kingdom of God and become the church. But also, as you continue to read Acts, you see, as we've shared, eyewitness accounts of death and suffering. In fact, as we sum up the series this morning, we end with Paul suffering in Rome, as Pastor Dan just read. Suffering in chains, awaiting trial, in house arrest. And verses before uh, 17, you will see that he went through a storm at sea. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a snake. In fact, if you look at Acts 21 all the way to 28 that we just read, you could entitle it The Suffering of Paul. Those are the stories that are included of of Paul's life. But in spite of all that, What struck me as I was putting together this message this week was Paul's zeal, his passion to spread the gospel in the midst of all his suffering. 
The joy, the encouragement that he experienced, as we see in Acts 28, 14, when they finally get to Rome, okay? This is the moment that what was started in Acts 1, 8, that Jesus sent his disciples to go and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. We see it being accomplished in this moment in Acts 28, verse 14, where they come on shore. There we found some brothers and sisters in Rome who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that, that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Apias and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Paul is encouraged despite of everything that is happening to him, and he sees the gospel spreading. Not only that, I love how this book ends, okay? It's a bit of a cliffhanger ending, but in verse 31, again, in the middle of a house arrest, in chains, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Despite his suffering, again, he endured all of this. He kept sharing Jesus. He kept preaching the kingdom. He kept spreading hope. And this is the question that kept coming to mind as I was reading this story after story after story. How did the suffering he experienced not lead him to despair? How did the suffering that he experienced in the last years of his life, some scholars say, did not lead him to a complete loss of hope? That's what despair is, right? Because some of you in this room might have been there, right? That place of all lost hope, of despair, Maybe that's where you are right now in this moment, going through a season of suffering. Asking God, where are you? Asking God, why is this happening to me? Trying to make sense, trying to bring meaning, not finding answers. You know, I've been at those points in my life. One point that just comes to mind every time I think about suffering is in my early 20s, where I reach this rock bottom moment of despair. Trying to find meaning in the midst of the suffering that I was experiencing in my life, not having any purpose, coming to the point of despair that I, I was convinced that this life was not worth living. So in that moment, I tried to commit suicide, but by God's grace, he saved me from going through with it, and a couple months later, I found myself back re-surrendering my life to Jesus. But in this past year, I have to ask the question, have you been at that point, that point of complete loss of hope? Because even this past year, in 2022, I have been there. Dealing with the loss of a loved one, dealing with the loss of a job. Maybe for you, it's the loss of a relationship. Maybe for you, it's watching a loved one of yours suffer. Maybe for you, it's the loss of meaning or the loss of hope. Time and time again this past year, I was in this weird place where I was trying to find a job. Some of you know my story, but I couldn't find a job. And in the midst of all of that, everything that I was going through, I was asking myself this question, God, where are you? What have you called me to do if not to pastor? But again, going back to Paul, with all the things that he experienced, the beatings, the shipwreck, the death threats, the imprisonment, he doesn't find himself in despair, but both encouraged and seeing God move in Rome as he shares his faith. So here's the question. What gave him continued hope? Right? 
What gave him continued hope? Because when it comes to suffering, there's two places you can go. One is despair, as we just said. The other place is hope. And this story that we, we hear and we read about just in these next couple moments is a story of Paul living out this hope. This story illustrates that he kept moving forward no matter what obstacle comes his way, no matter what hardship let him down, he kept moving forward. And I love Eugene Peterson when he talks about hoping. He says this, we see it illustrated in Paul's life. He says this, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not a fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. What kept Paul hoping? This is what I believe it was. It was his perspective. It was his perspective. And this is what I want you to get this morning as we start. Okay? This is my whole message right here in one line. Perspective shapes our experience of suffering. Perspective shapes our experience of, of suffering. So what was Paul's perspective, and how can it become ours, okay? To answer this question, for the main por portion of this message, I want to do something a little different, okay? I want to take us back to a letter Paul wrote back in Acts 20, before he started this long journey from chapter 21 to 28, okay? And what we're going to do is not only find why he had hope, what his perspective was, and how it can become ours when we face suffering in this life. But we're also going to see how chapter 28, verses 7 to 31, is a picture of a man living out what he believed to be true. Because who would suffer like this if they didn't believe this was true, right? Who would go through all of this, like Paul just did, if he didn't believe the words that he wrote were true. So, Romans 5 is where we're going to go for a couple minutes this morning, okay? I want to take apart Paul's own words on suffering that he wrote to the church, the Christians that we just met in verse 14, the church in Rome. So in the letter he wrote to them called Romans, he penned these words before all the suffering he experienced here, okay? Verses 5 1 to 5 is, I'm going to read it out, but we're going to concentrate it on, on verses 3 to 5, okay? Here we go. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we moved back uh, to BC about a year and a half ago, I really thought this transition from Ontario back home to BC, as I said, me and my wife grew up in Richmond, was going to be smooth, like just really smooth, you know, back with family, back with friends, some that I see in the crowd this morning. And although at first it did feel smooth, it did feel like coming home and it was all great, really quickly it turned out to be one of the worst experiences of my life one of the hardest seasons that me and my wife had to walk through as a couple. 
And the biggest part was coming back, believing that God was calling us back to BC at the start of 2022, I couldn't figure out what was next, as I said. Vocationally, I couldn't figure out what God was calling me to do. And at first, what was a three-month sabbatical turned into a whole year of just waiting on God. And in those moments, you know, of rejection, being turned down job after job after job, I never experienced so much rejection in my life. Those moments that I had to sit and all of a sudden these deep wounds and pain were coming back to the surface as I interacted with people for the first time in years because as I said, I went out to Ontario and I came back and I had to face some of these wounds that were being brought to the, the surface, some of these moments, some of these people, some of these interactions. And in that moment, I was struggling with a loss of purpose. I was struggling not wanting to get up some mornings and some nights indulging into escapism just to numb the pain. Yet through it all, this verse, Romans 5, has never came alive to me more so in those moments. And what Paul writes here, Paul, the writer of this letter to the Roman church, which, side note, this letter is arguably the most influential book in Christian history. But this is what he writes. He starts out with this, therefore, therefore, pertaining to everything he just talked about in chapter 4. So get, to give us context, to give you what he talked about, he just finished talking about the process of justification. The process of us as human beings being made right with the God of the universe. When through faith we believe that Jesus was the Son of God, sent to live a perfect life in our place and die for our sins on the cross, being resurrected from the dead, he not only created a way for us to be made right with God, but he also created a way for us to be in relationship with God, uh, the God of the universe, our rightful place. And Paul laying that all out because of that, when we believe and we are justified, these are the things that he says are true about us. First, we have peace with God. Not just a subjective feeling of peace, but there is peace between us and the God of the universe. We are in good terms with him. Two, we have access to grace, meaning we get what we don't deserve. As followers of Jesus, we are in a favorable position to receive all God's blessing, that through Jesus, God has taken you and positioned you directly under his waterfall of grace. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you feel, that is true. Three, we have hope. More specifically, that hope of the glory of God, meaning we will experience God face to face when he makes all things new and we get to experience the new heaven and the new earth. That is what we're looking forward to. And I love how one author puts it. By itself, heaven can be an abstract, unappetizing idea. But if you come to taste access with God and realize how intoxicating it is, just to have a couple drops of his presence on your tongue, you will desire to drink from the fountainhead. That desire, he writes, focus and joyous certainty, certainty, certainty of the, hope, the future hope is called the hope of glory. 
Here at Port Kells Church, as we gather every Sunday, that is our hope, that as we gather into the presence of God, that you would experience, that you would just get a couple drops of his presence, that you would experience that, and it would leave you wanting more of Jesus as you leave this place. But to sum it up, to put it even simpler, okay, what I just said is that if you follow Jesus in this place, first, you have been set free from your sin, past, present, and future. You have been set free in the present, to enjoy a relationship with the God of the universe. And in the future, you will experience the freedom and life lived in the full, being in the very presence of God's glory. And in light of all that, Paul comes in in verse three here in Romans and says this, we also glory in our sufferings. We also glory in our sufferings. This is what this phrase doesn't mean. We don't rejoice for our sufferings, for our sufferings. The verse says in, not for. Otherwise, that would be masochism. Some people who deal with their unworthiness and guilt need to feel punished in order to deal with those feelings. And a lot of, the people, a lot of those people deal with the feelings of unworthiness. You know, I've been through times in my life that I felt that unworthiness, but feeling unworthy is not what it means to glorify, or as James says in his book in chapter one, to count it all joy, to rejoice. Neither is it a way to justify yourself, meaning some people, because they have had a hard life, think God owes them, but that is justification through works. But as we just said, it's all a gift of grace. What we need to do to understand this verse rightly is we need to process and filter suffering through the grand gospel narrative that starts in Genesis. And this is my encouragement for you. Go back and read Genesis 1 and 3, and you will realize really quickly that if you start in Genesis 1, 2, 3, suffering doesn't come from God, but is a result of the fallen evil world we live in that is infected by sin. Reading Genesis 1 and 3 for yourself will come to the conclusion that God makes the world and it is good. It's a blissful place, void of sin, suffering, and evil. But Adam and Eve, instead of trusting God, try to become like God by eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And the consequences of that decision, of that action, is that they have to leave paradise. And as they leave the garden of evil, they enter into a world that is full of suffering, affected by sin. Hence, as we live this life out on this earth, we will be affected by the climate of sin, evil, and suffering that is all around us. But that was never God's initial, original creation. God hates pain and the troubles of this life that we humans experience, and we should too. It grieves his heart to see his children suffer. And like a good father who can't stand to watch their children suffer, he came down to earth to deal with sin, the source of suffering himself. This is what makes him trustworthy, and this is what helps us realize that we can relate to him. He's relatable because he has suffered himself, both as a person taking on flesh and blood on the cross, he has suffered himself, but also he has seen his son suffer on the cross. So when you see a loved one suffering, he knows what you're going through. 
He knows that deep pain that you're experiencing in that moment. And this is why it's good news. And it's a narrative that brings meaning to suffering. I heard a pastor lay it out like this. Humans are meaning-seeking creatures, okay? All the time. We're telling ourselves stories to make sense of the lives that we're living. Coherent narratives of the lives that we're living to make sense of it all. It's how we are wired as human beings. And one main interruption to no matter what narrative or story you decide to live out in this life, one main interruption to that, a common human experience, is suffering. You can't avoid it in this life. Suffering comes in where it's least expected. And knowing that, if you look at the different religions of this world, okay? So knowing that the Buddhists and the Eastern spirituality folk, they take this narrative of suffering, right? And when it comes to suffering, they apply a narrative that tells themselves, that gives it meaning, that it's only an illusion. That's how they try to make sense of it with the story that they're telling. The narrative that we're being told in this Western secular culture that we're living in is a story that this culture comes at us and tells us that when, when we look at suffering, it's an absolute unmitigated curse, which is true. It is a curse. It's a, the curse of sin. But here's Paul's perspective, and this is the narrative we hold on to as followers of Jesus in the gospel, the true story where we look at suffering not as an illusion, but something extremely real. So real that it took the God of the universe to come down to deal with it once and for all, changing what from a moment could be a devastating interruption and changing it to the possibility of becoming a point of redemption. Infusing those moments with hope. Paul says it like this later in Romans 8.38. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Even though we experience evil and suffering, God can take it, that evil thing, and use it for good, our betterment, so that we can become the best versions of ourselves, a human that reflects God perfectly. Why can Paul say this? With such confidence? Well, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which we're going to get into this holy week on Good Friday and next week on Easter. But in that event, in the resurrection of Jesus is the great reversal of suffering. That what is meant to harm you can now be used for good. That even though living on this earth comes with pain, sadness, loss, physical suffering, mental and emotional suffering, heartache, broken relationships. As Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. But he says this, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus' resurrection shouts at you that your pain and suffering don't get the last word. Because there is hope that passes all understanding, that can take what the enemy meant to harm you and turn it for good as a follower of Jesus. And this is what happens, okay? This is the process that Paul lays out for us when it comes to suffering and going through it in verse 3b of Romans. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
This is the process of how God repurposes suffering. First, suffering leads to perseverance. This word means a single-mindedness, a focus. It helps us focus on what is really important. It helps us align our priorities. It removes distractions, which leads us to character, a word that means testedness, a quality of confidence that results in a growing poise that comes from experience. An example of this is, um, you know, a sports team that goes to the championship playoffs for the first time, okay? A sports team that goes to the playoffs for the first time may play poorly because they have never been there before, right? But a tested team, a team that has been there before year after year, that's experienced, they have fewer jitters, they perform well because they have been there before. That's what Paul is talking about in this moment. And that testedness, that character, leads to growth in hope. Our confidence in that hope is increased because of the peace and access to grace we know we have. Not only that, any rival sources of confidence and hope that we have from other places, like our job or a relationship or our accomplishment, places we might get a sense that uh, deep down we are okay, Suffering burns away those false hopes and leads us to the only lasting hope, God. Suffering will make you doubt God's love. That's a natural human response. I know it's true in my own life. It's a natural human response. As you're going through suffering, as you're experiencing pain or seeing a loved one go through pain, you will doubt God's love. But how quickly you shake off those initial thoughts and feelings is evidence of how deeply the gospel has gripped your heart. And I say this with conviction because I've been through this process. And I could stand up here and tell you story after story after story, but particularly from last year, there were moments in my experience that I called Dan or my other pastor friends in tears, dealing with this deep hurt and pain that was being stirred up in those moments, questioning God, trying to deal with the disappointment again and again, doubts that God was with me or for me, but in light of all that, I tried to adopt Paul's perspective. I tried to, to allow this scripture to speak truth into what I was experiencing, to fuel me to keep pressing forward. And what I found was that on the other side of all of this, God was making me into who he created to me. He was making me into a person that could image God more accurately. And every time this last season, when I got up here, in moments like this, to preach God's word in my brokenness, and no matter what I was feeling in that moment, God worked through me powerfully. Why? Because I believe that this was happening in my life. And I can tell, I'm going to tell you one story. And I remember this. At the end of the season, last summer, I went to this camp. Um, and, and I was preaching on this sermon on healing. And it was a sermon that I've done before, okay? So I knew it was like, you know, mediocre at best. And so I give this sermon, and I stop, and I just feel like uh, what we're about to do here, I have you, some of you guys experienced that, we were just going to wait 
to see what God was doing in the room. And I stopped and we waited on the Holy Spirit. And it was silent. And all of a sudden, I had this sense. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was this impression of the Spirit on my mind that there was someone in the room that, that their hands were getting warm, that they felt somewhat like their hands were on fire, so to speak. Weird thought, I know, okay? But because of my experience, I know, and I've had this thought before, and I've been taught by some of my mentors that this can be a sign that this person has the spiritual gift of healing. And so taking a step of faith, believing that God put this impression on my heart, in front of these 100 people, I was like, hey, I could be totally wrong, but some of you, maybe one or two of you, might be experiencing this, that your hands are getting warm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? But if that's nobody in the room, that's fine. I could be wrong. Let's just keep moving on and we'll pray. As soon as I said that, I said like, hey, if that's you, stick up your hand really quick. I just want to pray for you. And in the corner of my eye, I see my buddy. His name's Dave. And I know him really, really well. And if anybody is skeptical to these things, it's my buddy Dave. And he kind of shoots his hand up with utter skepticism on his face. And as he does that, I remember his wife telling me that she was even shocked that his hand went up. And he stood up, shaking, because this is what he was experiencing. And in that moment, I just blessed what God was doing. I prayed over him um, just from afar. And I said, like, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go into a moment that we're going to pray for one another in the room that need to be healed, believing that God wants to move in this place. And in this moment, uh, there was a woman on the other side of the room from Dave, okay? And she was praying in this moment. None of us knew this in her heart that Dave would walk over and pray for her because she was experiencing some major neck pain in that moment. And as we moved into circles and started praying, my buddy Dave, not knowing, walked across the room, prayed for this woman, and her neck was healed. And that's just one of the stories that I could share from that night of God moving in power. And something changed about my preaching. And the only way that I could make sense of it when is when I went to 1 Peter 1.7, and he says this, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith or greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, suffering can be repurposed to be a refining fire that purifies and molds us into a vessel that God can use in powerful ways that gives him glory because it brings us to the end of ourselves where we're in this place of humility and humbleness that we understand that if God doesn't move, we have nothing. Glory and suffering are always tied together because Jesus' greatest glory came through suffering. His greatest glory came through the cross. And as we, you follow Jesus, I want to continue to drill this into you here at PKC. Jesus is our model. And I want you to hear this. Jesus didn't die on the cross, so you didn't have to. Jesus died on the cross to show you how. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. That is discipleship. That is following Jesus. But I don't want you to get this wrong or hear me 
wrong. Listen, if you're a Christian, you need to understand this. Yes, sin is the source of suffering. Yes, God can use suffering to awaken a person, to interrupt, uh, to awaken a person to their sin, like an intervention with an alcoholic or a drug addict. Sure, he can do it that way. But suffering as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, is, is never punishment for the mistakes that we make. For a certain sin you committed. If you are a Christian, God sent all your punishment onto Christ. All his wrath for you fell onto the heart of Jesus and was swallowed and absorbed there. It disappeared forever. He has no wrath left for you. You are free to view your suffering not as God crushing you, but an evil thing that God that God can take and use to make you look more like Jesus. You are free to see suffering as it's happening to you, not merely afterwards, in a way that only gospel faith produces, as something that does not touch your joy. For what you have lost in your suffering, be it comfort, health, wealth, and so on, was not where your joy is found in the first place. That is Paul's perspective. This is what I know to be true because of my experiences with God this past season. In the midst of hardship, I have fallen on my knees in worship because of this verse, because I didn't have the strength to stand, but this is what I know to be true. Sometimes in your greatest experiences, in your tests of faith, you experience the presence of God in such a real way. In your deepest pain, it's that refining process where God draws close to you to shape you into pure gold so that you can become the most glorious version of yourself. And that most glorious version is the version of yourself that reflects and images Jesus most accurately. So here's the invitation. If you're walking through a season of suffering in this moment, written by the poet Rumi, talking about scars and suffering. She writes, the wound is the place where the light enters you. Or as Paul says in verse 5 of Romans 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The one true light, which is God, wants to illuminate the darkness in your life and pour his love into those wounds through his spirit to make you whole in this moment if you allow him to, if you surrender your life to him, if you, if you open yourself up to the power of the gospel that is at work here in this room through his spirit. See, Paul's story is an amazing one if you follow it through the book of Acts, right? And it's easy to forget with everything that God did through his life, through this one man, that he was just a human like me and you. Let's not forget, he was a murderer, saved, refined, and used by God to bring about revival. What we've been talking about this whole series. Revival, to bring it full circle. Revival being where the kingdom of God breaks in and breaks through. And this is what I believe coming out of this past season, going through suffering that allowed me to experience all of this 
brought me to a place of personal renewal in my own life when it comes to my walk with Jesus. And this is what I believe. The seeds of revival are individuals experiencing personal renewal in their own lives. That's the seed of revival. The seeds of revival are individuals who experience personal renewal in their own lives. When I say personal renewal, this is what I mean. That is a renewed intimacy with God where heart and mind are electrified by the nearness of his presence. It's the burning center of that moment where scripture, prayer, and worship come alive in a holy, expectant way. And when you take the perspective of Paul, when it comes to suffering, your season of suffering can be turned into a season of personal renewal. And here's the potential of impact of just one person in this room experiencing personal renewal, okay? Here's the potential, just so that I can leave you and stoke your imaginations with what God can do through one person. If you haven't got it already from uh, the story of Paul, I wanna read you the story, okay? So bear with me, it's a bit of a long story, but this is how I'm gonna end, okay? One person experiencing personal renewal. In 1738, John Wesley, having failed in his mission to the American South, sailed back to England with uncertainty about his calling and doubts about his relationship with God. After a series of heart-searching meetings with Moravian leaders, Peter Bowler, he made his way to Alders, Aldersgate Street. There, a personal breakthrough sparked a level one revival in the plowed soil of Wesley's soul. This is what he writes. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did not trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That impact of this moment, the writer says, though profoundly personal, would not remain private. Inspired by the example of the Moravian prayer vigil, Wesley gathered others, including his brother Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, to commit themselves to seeking God for a greater outpouring of the Spirit. On January 1st, 1739, eight months after Wesley's Aldergate encounter, a level two revival, or the next stage of revival, reignited as more than 60 people in Wesley's network of relationships felt their hearts warmed as well about in three in the morning. As they were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon them and so much so that many cried out with exceeding joy. Okay, within weeks of that prayer meeting, the revival expanded, went out. George Whitfield led a preaching campaign in Bristol and it keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps spreading. Revival went out and it packed England and revival went out and it impacted the global world as we knew it, as we know it. That is what can happen with one man's life or one woman's life that experiences personal renewal. And although Acts comes to an abrupt end in verse 31, we see that God accomplishes through Paul what he set out to do in Acts 1 and 8. Paul's life is also an example of a personal 
invitation and experience of renewal leading to a global awakening. So here's the question. What is your perspective when it comes to suffering? Remember, perspective shapes our experience of suffering. The choice for some of you this morning is that you can let the suffering you experience lead you to despair or you can lay it at the feet of Jesus in this moment. The hope of the world who gives you a peace that passes all understanding and has a power to transform your life. So as we end this series, I want to pray again. I want us to just wait in silence, to invite this Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants to do, to apply what I just said, these verses that I just read, to your life, to your heart, to your mind. And if this is a new experience of practicing silence together as community, I love this quote by Richard Rohr. He says this, we cannot attain the presence of God. We're already totally in the presence of God. What's absence, what is absent, he writes, is awareness. Why do we wait? We wait to become aware of God's presence that is already with us in this moment. So let's pray and do that as community.